Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We're going to jump into something uh, this morning, and it's really going to be the beginning, uh, kind of a, a, a high-level over, overview of a subject that we're going to be getting into in the days to come. And really, it's going to become the inlet to two different uh, tributaries we're going to get down, two different series, uh, I, I believe, that there will be. But I just kind of want to give a big overview. Now, if this is your first time here, don't judge me by what I say this morning, okay? <laughs> if you think I'm a heretic, hang with me. I'm going to root it in Scripture. And, uh, and then, you know, we, we don't always talk about such weird stuff. Uh, but we just, just hang with me and, and give me a chance to make a case here this morning. But what I want to talk about is bringing, I want to shed some light on darkness. I want to look at uh, how darkness operates in the earth. Paul said, we are not ignorant of the enemy's devices. I'm not so sure all of us could say that. I'm not sure all of us could say with Paul in such a confident way that we're not ignorant. And so we want to look at how evil operates. I mean, just give you a little background on what's prompted me to talk about this. Uh, you know, some of you have gone and saw the movie. I, I don't remember what it's called. Come out in Jesus' name. Or, is, that, is that the name of it? I got it the first time. And I haven't seen it yet. Uh, but, uh, you know, I've heard great things that, you know, people are going through deliverance in, in the movie theater. And that's awesome. Uh, this week I went to hear a gal and she spoke on deliverance and... and uh, there are emphases that come through the body of Christ cyclically. And uh, that's a good thing. God, God will begin to emphasize things that the church needs to hear at a given time. But I want to make sure as a church we understand the concept of deliverance. I, wanna, I want us to understand uh, how deliverance works you can operate in deliverance, and it can be very messy and a long, drawn-out process. And after all the dust is settled, the people end up back in bondage again because there's certain things we don't do. Or we can learn how to do deliverance the biblical way, and it's a much easier process. It's a much cleaner process, and it also will keep people free. And so we're going to look at we're going to look at deliverance, and I I I think we're going to go into a series on that, and this will be the introduction for that. Then I want to get into a series on what uh, Dean Briggs and Mark Brisebois, uh, what they taught us. I want to get into that, and really these two things fold in together well. Really, they fold in well with our life groups, the emphasis of our life groups recently, because in our life groups we've been talking about the nature of the spiritual realm and how, how to be spiritual men and women and how does the spiritual realm work and how do we engage the spirit. And uh, that leads us into the whole concept of we are a Trinitarian being. We are spirit, soul, and body. God is uniquely created man with the equipment to engage both the spiritual realm and the physical realm. And we need to learn to operate in both. The fact is, when God created both heavens, the first verse in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They were created simultaneously because they're to function in unison, together. And God uniquely made man with the equipment to engage in both the spiritual realm and in the physical realm. He gave us a human spirit with which we engage with God, the Holy Spirit, and with which we discern what's going on in the unseen realm around us. And he gave us a body so that we could function in this physical realm, this physical world. Then he gave us a soul as kind of the liaison between the two. So we're to receive revelation of what's going on, we discern in our spirit, process it in our soul, make decisions in our soul, and give orders to our body to carry out the will of God to engage the spiritual realm. But if we don't understand that, and if we don't understand how to develop our spiritual senses, then we're left at a disadvantage. The fact is, we are very attuned to our physical senses, but very... Uh, often very ignorant of our spiritual senses. And God wants us to develop those spiritual senses. There are practical things we can do to grow in our ability to engage the spiritual realm. 
Now, uh, you're kind of getting an idea why we're going to have to go into two separate series is because there are so many things we could get into on this subject. But what I want to talk about this morning is I want to talk about the three entrances of evil into human history. The three entrances of evil. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I ask God that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, that this would become a classroom. And Lord, that your teaching would fall like rain, that you would open the eyes of our understanding and instruct your sons and daughters. Lord, that we would learn and we would grow up into the wisdom and the knowledge that you have for us, Lord. And Father, I ask that you would grace me not only to share truth, but to share it in a way that's encouraging by the time we're done. In Jesus' name, amen. I know, this can be a bummer, bummer of a subject. Uh, just going to read, read some, th- some notes. Because of the nature of what we're going to talk about, I want to stay on track here this morning. Uh, the, sen- the second temple Jews, uh, that was around 600-year period. It was about 512, uh, about 512 to 70 AD. So 512 years before Christ to 70 AD. That was the second temple period. And that was a time of a lot, a lot of theological activity among the Jewish people. Uh, the, second Jewish, the second temple Jewish period, that's what it's referred to by scholars, uh, they hammered out, they had a very clear theology of three, you could even say three falls. You know, we talk about the fall uh, of Adam and Eve when Adam and Eve entered into sin, the entrance of evil through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, and that was one of them, and that is the one we're most familiar with as evangelical Christians, but there were also two other entrances of evil or two other forms of fall that affected mankind. And what we need to understand is, when we understand that, we can begin to realize that there were three entrances of evil dealing with three separate Groups of uh, uh, beings, if you will, and I'll only want to unpack this, and there's three different ways that we bring the remedy (laughs) to those three entrances, okay? So there was the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, and by the way, the cross deals with all three of these. Matter of fact, as you delve into these second and third entrances of evil, uh, a lot of times theologians will get into this, but we don't talk about this much in the church unless we're just kind of, we get into these kind of little offshoots of weird theology, uh, and that's the way it's treated, and so we kind of back away from these things. The fact is, however, that this is very important stuff, and it's good, and in order for us to understand, in order for us to engage uh, and become the answer that Calvary has provided, we've got to understand how to engage these three levels of evil, okay? So, uh, there's... I'm going to need the grace of God this morning. There's Adam and Eve's fall in Genesis chapter 3. That was the fall of man. That was personal evil where man, where Adam and Eve believed to lie about God and opened their heart to sin. So man's nature became sinful. That was internal sin. The internal nature of man was fallen and corrupted. And therefore, man had to be redeemed personally. That was internal sin. But there were also two other episodes in which sin entered the world. And, and some of them, they, they aren't as controversial as they, they used to be uh, because there's different theological views on this. The second one is Genesis chapter 6 where the watchers went into the daughters of men. That strange passage that says there were watchers, they were a, 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 a species of angel, if you will, that was assigned by God to uh, come into the earth, but they came in, it says in Genesis chapter six, they recognized the beauty of the daughters of men. And they went into them, and the, the sons of which became the heroes of old. And so you're like, what in the world do you do with that? A lot of times we don't do anything. We skip over it because it sounds so weird. But here's the problem. If we skip the weird parts of the Bible, we're going to skip some big sections of the Bible. And there's a reason God put that in there. 
Jude refers to this. First Peter refers to this. And there's extra biblical material that also refers to this fall, this sin of the watchers. And there was a different type of evil that entered the world at the sin of the watchers. Whereas through Adam and Eve, there was internal sin and man's nature was altered by, he, was, he died spiritually and had to be redeemed and born again. Through the watchers, there was an external evil that entered the world. Not only did they, they cohabitate with the daughters of men and, and produced a hybrid uh, sons, sons that were the giants of old, and they were the heroes of old. Goliath was one of them. Not only did they produce that, but but we also know that they brought hidden knowledge or forbidden knowledge, occult knowledge, because they understood how the spiritual realm operated. Now, there is material that we don't understand about this scenario in human history. The Bible gives us hints. There's extra biblical material that is not part of the canon of Scripture. And we need to understand this because sometimes when people talk about this scenario, they begin to quote apocryphal books. There's nothing wrong with that as long as we understand the apocryphal books were not a part of the canon of Scripture. The apocryphal books, uh, how many of you are familiar with the apocryphal books? The, the word apocryphal has taken on some different meanings over time. Now it means uh, it's kind of suspect, we're not sure of the source, it's, it's corrupted, don't, don't read that. A lot of that meaning came through the Reformation. The problem is that is not how the apostles, the original 12, nor the early church fathers viewed those apocryphal writings. They didn't necessarily believe they were part of the canon of Scripture. I don't believe they should be part of the canon of Scripture. But what they did view it as is accurate history. They looked at it as an act. It was a representation of the worldview of the Jewish people at that time. And that was the world, the context, the mindset, the worldview out of which the apostles wrote the scriptures and the early church fathers. And the early church fathers referred to some of these books. Even Jude quotes one of the uh, apocryphal books. First Peter uh, alludes to it. And you can see as you begin to understand this second uh, entrance of evil, there's things that Paul wrote that suddenly make, make sense. For instance, when Paul said that women should uh, worship with their head covered because of the angels. You ever wondered what that was about? It's a reference back to this fall, this watcher entrance. We're not going to get into that. If, you, if you're interested in some material to read on that, some solid theologians, I'll, I'll give you some recommendations if you come and see me. So we need, to, the, the reason I bring this up is there are things that we can derive from these apocryphal books uh, that, that gives us the framework of the biblical writers. It, it doesn't mean that we trust everything that was written in those books. Matter of fact, Martin Luther, one of the reformers, what he did is he, when he would publish his Lutheran Bible, they'd have the Old Testament, the New Testament, and in between they had a, a different section of the apocryphal books. They didn't look at them as uh, inspired or God-breathed like the rest of the, book, the Bible, but they did recognize that there was a value to it because it provided the biblical worldview. We know from the book of Enoch, uh, one of the apocryphal books, because originally the, name, the word apocryphal literally meant uh, that it, it bore the name of an author that wasn't, bore the name of someone that wasn't the author. So there's, scholars don't believe that Enoch wrote the book of Enoch. Now, there may have been a large amount of oral history that was passed down from Enoch, but the person who put the pen to it during the uh, Second Temple period was not Enoch. He was long gone. He lived a long time, but not that long. And so that, that's originally what that word meant. And that doesn't undermine the veracity of the book. Again, I'm not saying it's inspired of God, and uh, God breathed in the sense it's without error, but I am saying it just because it's called Enoch, it wasn't written by Enoch, doesn't undermine the veracity because the book of 2 Samuel was not written by Samuel because Samuel was dead by the time it was written. The, all the, all the, I mean, he wasn't that prophetic. He didn't, you know, well, he was still alive, write about everything that was going to happen after his death. It bore his name because it was from that era of Samuel's ministry. 
And so the book of Enoch tells us that they also brought forbidden knowledge. Now, in recent years, back as, as, early as, or as recent as the 1940s, there has been unearthed some documents in, a, in, a, in an ancient language uh, called Ugaritic. And it was the language of the Hittites. And it's been fascinating as they found this, as they've unearthed this language and, and uh, scholars have begun to be familiar with this language and begin to translate it, how closely it lays over the Hebrew language, the etymology of it, uh, a lot of the same worldview. And we see this also as you get into Persia, into Babylon, there's a lot of the same worldview. Matter of fact, you get into Greece and mythology and the war of the gods and Samson being uh, the, you know, the strong man the great warrior that was the product of God, a, a God in heaven and a woman on earth, and he was a hybrid. All of that mythology comes out of this passage and this common shared history of the ancient world. Let me put it, say it again. It's a shared history that all of these ancient societies had stories of. Now, pagan or uh, atheist anthropologists will say, see, they're all just borrowing from each other and it's all mythology and superstition. Just because they all had a similar story doesn't mean that they were all making up and someone made it and they were all sharing the same religion. Any more than if you see a car wreck and you, you talk to five different people as witnesses, oh, their, their, their story is very similar. They must be making it up. No, it's it, th- where they agree is where you can be pretty confident there's some truth behind that, Correct? The same is true with literary interpretation. So as you get into these ancient cultures, they all have their story of a flood, and the flood was a judgment on these watchers going into the daughters of men. That was the purpose of the flood. The only difference is where they diverge and they disagree is the Jewish people had something different they believed about that. And much of Jewish scripture was actually written as a polemic against what these other societies believed. Because these other societies believed that this was a positive thing. And the hero of their story were the watchers who were coming down and trying to help mankind by giving them wisdom they would not have had had they not arrived. But the Jewish scriptures, being in touch with the Most High God, they understood that this was, these were rogue entities that came under the judgment of God. And the fascinating thing is you get into Persian literature, Babylonian literature, Ugaritic literature, all these, they all have this story, even the Grecian literature of mytho, you know, Grecian, Grecian mythology and all that stuff, they all have a story of some type of rebellion like this and the top God in their, their theology judged these beings and put them in chains, which is what First Peter and Jude tell us happened. The difference is the Jewish people understood this was rebellion and that forbidden knowledge introduced tremendous chaos into the world. It harmed man. The Babylonians, they saw themselves as the recipients of the hidden wisdom and, and all the, you know, the, uh, the magi, the, uh, were, who were magicians, all of them, they, were, they would study the stars, but they would also, this oral history, they were trying to pass it down and keep hold of this forbidden wisdom. It was occult wisdom. It's forbidden. Some of it works, but it will destroy you. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end there is of is death. And we're to follow the Spirit of God to learn of the spiritual realm, study the scriptures, and not to get outside the boundaries that God has given us. And the boundaries are very clear. You don't get into the occult. You don't, you don't try to contact the dead. You don't get into witchcraft. And those were the things that the book of Enoch tells us that these watchers brought to the sons and daughters of men. They, uh, the, the development of weaponry and tremendous sexual perversion, which altered Humanities to the point where it says every thought was evil continually. So God said, I'm going to wipe this thing out. I found one righteous man. And even the wording of the Hebrew insinuates that he, it very well could be interpreted. There's two different ways. It could be interpreted that he was one of the final strains of mankind whose bloodline was pure and wasn't contaminated by this hybrid blood of the watchers. And so God preserved Noah, did I say Abraham? Noah, preserved Noah through the flood 
And so it, we have in chapter, uh, then chapter 11 of, of Genesis, they try to build the Tower of Babel. This is, the, we, we're entering into the third fall, okay? So we have the first fall, individual, personal evil. Adam and Eve believed a lie, fell into sin. They personally needed redemption. Their spirit man died. They needed to be born again. Their, their spirit needed to be infused with the life of God once again, and that's what the born again spirit uh, experience is our spirit man coming back to life. First uh, Corinthians six says he was joined to the spirit becomes one with him in spirit. So we're the, the theological term is regenerated. The genetic code of God is actually infused into us so much so that Paul rebukes the believers of the New Testament said you're acting like mere men. You're to be the God men. You're not mere human beings. You've been infused with the, the spirit of the living God. You're born again, sons and daughters of God. Now, all of that is, you know, we're familiar with that biblical theology in the evangelical, evangelical church. What's interesting is when you begin to look at through the lens of this second fall. And the watchers came into the daughters of men to, to raise up a new race, their own sons and daughters. And so what was God's answer? To impregnate a young virgin, to bring forth his son, to bring forth a new human race, redeem sons and daughters of God. And so when you begin to understand this second type of fall, you begin to realize that much of what Jesus did was addressing this and not just this. Yes, he was addressing this. We need to be born again. But he was also dealing with the cosmic evil that infected that all that 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 uh, demonic knowledge that came into the earth realm he was dealing with that but he was also dealing with the third entrance of evil and the third entrance of evil uh, is in in a uh, Genesis chapter 11, we remember when Nimrod, uh, at the, after the flood, they were to spread across the world and, uh, and inhabit the earth, but what they did is they gathered around Nimrod, whose name has now become an insult, uh, but he was, it says he was a great warrior before the Lord. The Septuagint says he was a great warrior against the Lord. And he built a ziggurat. It wasn't just a tower. It was a ziggurat. It was a man-made mountain. Because in, in the ancient world, the mountains were the place of the gods. And they looked up, and it was, it was where heaven met earth. You would ascend a mountain at which some point, which the clouds, they, you'd walk right into the clouds. You'd walk into the heavens. Even Moses went and met God on the mountain. Matter of fact, in Ezekiel, Eden is referred to as a mountain. And so what Nimrod was trying to do, I just love that his name is now an insult. That Nimrod, that Nimrod named Nimrod, he was trying to build a ziggurat, a man-made mountain, to replicate the, the sin of the watchers. He wanted to attract that. And so what did God do? He came down and confused them and dispersed them across, by language, across the nations of the earth. This is what Paul is referring to when he comes. Remember when he's, he's on Mars Hill and he preaches and he said, you got, a, you got a, an idol to an unknown God. This is the God that I proclaim to you. God has chosen the times and places in which men should live. It's a reference to that dispersion. God assigned places to mankind because it was his strategy to take the world back. So Deuteronomy 32, let's look at that. Deuteronomy 32, if I can find that passage. Uh, look at Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. Now, depending on the translation you choose, will determine how this is translated because there's some texts, uh, ancient texts, that are different. The Masoretic text reads this way, and the ESV, which is really a very, very respected, it's probably... Uh, looked at as the scholarly version today. It's uh, a, lot of, a lot of scholars really gravitate towards the ESV. Uh, many of you remember Pastor Bob that was with us. Bob had two academic master's degrees and, uh, you know, was read Greek and, and so forth, and he loved the ESV, said it was a very accurate translation. This is how the ESV translates it, and uh, it's also how the Septuagint translates it. 
And the Septuagint, by the way, is the Greek version of the Old Testament. Alexander the Great had it commissioned because he, he had conquered Egypt. He, wanted, he started this city, humbly called it Alexandria after his own name, and wanted that to be the location of the most ultimate library in human history every day document in human history would be translated and then put in there, translated into Greek. So he got a bunch of Hebrew scholars to take the Hebrew scriptures and translate them into Greek. And the value for you and I is that these men lived very close to the time of that original language. And so they were familiar with the the linguistics and the the nuances. And so when they translated it into Greek, now we have a Greek text to compare with the Hebrew text and to look at them both. And it helps us narrow down the meaning of words that could mean two different things. And so that's why you'll hear people talk about the Septuagint. That's why it's valuable. So listen to what it says in verse 8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. What in the world is that? It's a reference to Genesis chapter 11 when God dispersed mankind. And he sent them across the nations, and it says, he divided mankind, he fixed the borders, the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Who are these sons of God? We see them show up in numerous passages in Scripture. We see them show up in Job chapter 1. The the sons of God came before the throne, and God God was talking to them, and and the Satan was there, and he said, you know, where have you been? He said, I've been roaming through the earth. It says the sons of God convened. There's numerous passages that refer to them, one of the most famous of which is Psalm 82. We're going to get there in a moment, because that is a strange passage that God addresses what he said he did here. Now, Genesis, or Deuteronomy 32 was Moses' last, it's called the Song of Moses, it was kind of his last address to the people of Israel. He'd been leading them, he wasn't allowed to go into the promised land because he had violated what the Lord told him to do. Uh, with great, responsib- with great revelation comes great responsibility, and the Lord was severe with Moses. He wasn't allowed to go in before his death, although he showed up in the New Testament with Jesus, so he got in. Hallelujah. So, uh, but Moses is addressing Israel, and he refers back to what happened in Genesis 11. He said, God divided the nations. That happened at, at, at Genesis 11. Scholars agree that that's what he was referring to. Some translations will say, and he divided the nations up among the sons of Israel, which would not make sense because Israel did not yet exist, because it's the, not until the next chapter that he introduces Abraham. Why? Because what he's doing in Genesis 11, he said, fine. I told you to go across the earth, I'm going to divide you up among the earth, and I'm going to start a nation for myself. And who was that man? The very next chapter. And Abram, from Ur, here's the voice of the Lord. Go to a place I will tell you about. And he gives him what's known as the Abrahamic blessing. He said, I will bless you, and you will what? Be a blessing to what? All the nations of the earth. And so God kept Israel for himself and delegated the oversight of these other nations to these sons of God, okay? But look at Psalm chapter 82. There's been a lot of scholarly writing done on these these passages in recent years. Uh, A lot of it is because of... uh, a scholar that recently died by the name of Michael Heiser. I love his stuff. I know some of you have read his stuff. Uh, but there's other scholars as well. And a lot of it has come, there's, it, it, because of the, the discovery of Ugaritic writings, they realize how much that dovetails with uh, the Jewish writings. And it's really set, kind of opened up some things. And, and uh, so look at Psalm 82 verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. 
Then he rebukes them. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in, what, in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now you can read that verse 5 as uh, a, a compassionate declaration over what's become of the sons of men or a rebuke to the sons of God. Uh, verse 6, I said, speaking of God, saying, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Verse 8, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. What in the world is he talking about? In verse 1, it says he takes his seat in the council among the gods. And he refers to these gods as sons of gods. Now, don't let that make you stumble and think, well, the Bible's talking about polytheism. It's talking about created beings that are of divine uh, a divine nature, an elevation. They are created, but they are considered the sons of God. God has a family in the heavens, and he has a family on earth. Sons on the earth, the sons of God on the earth. But in this, when God takes his seat in the council, we see this, this divine council scene show up in a number of passages. Again, in Job chapter 1, we see one. Uh, we see it in, I want to say it's 1 Kings, where uh, the Lord, uh, the, what was it, uh, Oh, I forget his name. He, he was a prophet. Uh, not, he's only mentioned in one passage. And uh, the, the righteous king of Judah is going to war with the unrighteous king of Israel, Ahab. And so he says, let's ask a prophet of God. And the prophet of God says, go ahead and do whatever you want. Uh, God's going to give you victory. And Ahab rebukes him and says, how many times do I got to tell you? Don't just tell me what, what I want to hear. Tell me what God is, God is really saying. And then he says, I saw a vision. And there was a, it was a divine council scene where God is sitting among these beings and he says, how are we going to tempt Ahab? And a spirit comes up and says, I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And he said, that's what we're going to do. And that's exactly what happened. That's a divine council scene. Now, that in and of itself has all kinds of questions that arise within our hearts, doesn't it? We're not going to deal with that today. <laughs> So what we have are these divine council scenes, but in this passage, what's going on is God is rebuking those that he gave charge of the nations. So what we have is God saying, listen, how long are you going to cater towards the powerful and ignore the destitute? And he rebukes them, and he closes it, says, you are all gods, but you will die like men. He's talking about the judgment that's going to come on these beings. So in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and Genesis 11, he delegates the nations to them. And Psalm 82, he rebukes them and says, I'm going to strip you of your power because you have not operated in the way that I intended for you to operate. And in Colossians, it says that he stripped the principalities of their power and made an open spectacle of them. So he carried out the sentence that he decreed over them in Deuteronomy, I mean, in Psalm 82, he carried it out at Calvary and talked about it in Colossians chapter two. This is a different rebellion and it, it explains why the, the, there's these, what, what uh, the book of Psalms calls these sons of God, the book of Ephesians calls principalities and powers. We see this same theology show up in Daniel. And when Daniel is writing about this and talking about these encounters, matter of fact, in Daniel, we see these watcher angels show up. And we know that some of them are doing God's bidding, so not all the watchers rebelled. There were at least a class of spiritual beings. The, the Babylonian people had a framework for a divine council. You can find it in all of their writings. The Ugaritic writings, the Persian writings, the Babylonian writings, there is language of this divine council. And the Hebrews had the same theology. The problem was the other cultures had a corrupted version of it. And that is why the Hebrews referred to their God as the most high God. It's not that they believed in polytheism. They just used that terminology in a different way than you and I do. 
And so they were beings to which God delegated authority. So we have the personal rebellion of Adam and Eve, which we inherited. We were born dead in our trespasses and sins. Jesus died on Calvary to redeem us from that personal fall and to give us a new nature so that we could be born again, sons and daughters of God. There was the second fall of the watchers who were judged. That's why people will read in 1 Peter and say, well, if these these fallen beings were sentenced to chains and they're in chains of darkness, then where are these demons coming from and where are all, you know, what are we dealing with now if they're in chains? It's because these watchers were not demons. They were the fallen uh, guardians, so to speak, and they are in chains. They're not roaming about. And then we have these rogue rulers we know now as principalities that rule over municipalities and geographic regions. Their authority is designated to them by geographic boundary lines. It's interesting, you never see Jesus rebuke a principality while he walked the earth in his ministry. There's a reason for that. You do see him casting out devils, demons, and so we need to understand. Now, you're, you, Some of you are looking at me, and I don't blame you. You're like, Pastor, what does all this have to do with me struggling with you know, my anger? Let me get there. We'll, we'll make this really practical, okay? This fall affected your nature. And you were born again, but now you need to grow up into that nature, and you need to put off the old nature. You can't cast that old nature out. You know, you know I'm a, I rebuke that fallen nature. I cast you out. Good luck with that. This is a process and not an event, and you've got to learn to deal with your flesh. You've got to learn discipline. This doesn't come out by deliverance, okay? This one, this is where deliverance comes in because what the book of Enoch tells us, and some of the early church fathers quote this, so understand, we don't see this directly in Scripture. There's a question. A lot of people believe that demons were the fallen angels. That is not the case. The fallen angels are these spirits that are ruling over regions and the watchers that are already in chains. Demons are not angels. Enoch tells us, and the early church fathers quoted this, this was the theology of the early church, that the demons were the disembodied spirits of this hybrid race known as the Nephilim, these, these giants that were half angelic being and half humanoid, and God judged them, but they didn't go to hell because they weren't purely human. So these disembodied spirits. So Enoch uses this type of language. Hungering, they cannot eat. Thirsting, they cannot drink. So they, they long to find a human host through which they can satisfy their longings. They're looking to embody another person, inhabit them, to lure them into the perversion that they once enjoyed so that they can momentarily enjoy that sin once again. They ride you like a, like a beast of burden until they wear you out and destroy you, and then they look for another. That is the demons. Demons, we cast out. Demons, we take authority over. You can't take, you, you don't take authority and cast out your flesh. You overcome it. You discipline yourself. You Renew your mind. Maybe we'll get into this in a, in a Sunday soon. Uh, the Trinitarian nature of man, we need to understand. We feed our spirit. We grow our spirit man. We grow up into him who is the head. But we discipline our flesh. We tell it no. Tom reached out to me yesterday. Pastor, IHOP's having this 21-day fast for Israel. Are we in or not? And I've known about it, and I felt called to it, but I'll have to admit, my flesh has been, no, not again. <laughs> but I leaned over to my wife this morning after worship, and I said, I am fat. I need a fast. But that's not why I'm going to fast. I need to, I need to discipline my body. I need to drag it around. I need to tell it no. Hey, 
you do what I say. Because there was a time where my body did that to my spirit. You're going to go with me. And I'm like, no, no, no. Now my spirit's gone. You're going to do what I say. No, no. Hopefully my spirit, my flesh sounds like that. No, no. We drag it around and every now and then just tell it what to do. We need to discipline our flesh. And then in our soul, we need to renew our mind. We need to learn not to follow our emotions, but have them follow us. And that'll preach. Not this morning, but one of these days. And then we need to discipline our will so that the soul can become the liaison for what's going on in heaven. Our spirit receives from God and executes his decisions in our body and we live a blessed life and we give it away because when we follow him I'm not saying that there won't be no problems but I'm gonna tell you there's a whole lot less problems okay life works when you follow him and so we discipline our flesh our that nature we've got to learn to live in that higher nature are in this area, we, we rebuke demons, we cast them out. We're going to talk about how that happens because I'm concerned about some of the teaching I'm hearing flying around about deliverance. And you can see some movement, you can see some dramatic manifestations, but people will not remain free unless you deal with the legalities of its entrance. You've got to deal with the legal ground. And so we're going to unpack that, and this is just kind of the intro, okay? Over here... We don't cast out principalities. I don't rebuke principalities. We do wrestle with them, Paul says. There is an engagement with them in the region where we take our stand. And there's even an engagement in worship, which will take us down the other lane that Mark and Dean were talking about, where we are declaring the wonders of heaven. We're declaring the works of God. We're pressing the crown rights of King Jesus in worship. We're declaring his victory over them, the public shame that he exposed them to, because they are now squatters. They are rogue residents over regions that need to be displaced by the earthly sons of God displacing the spiritual sons of God. And we'll look at all, how all that works. But the problem is when people think you cast out principalities, at best, you're, certain, you're going to war with a squirt gun. And at worst, you can get yourself in some pro trouble. And if you think you can cast out your flesh... Well, good luck with that. <laughs> so we need to understand there were three entrance, entries, points of evil. And each one deals with a different group. This one, it be us. You know, remember that old comic book? You know, what was it? There, there was an old comic. It said, uh, we found the enemy and he is us. Yeah. The, we're, we're the enemy to be dealt with here. This one, it's these low-level demons. Demons are not fallen angels. They're disembodied spirits of these hybrid men. And they bow at the name of Jesus. We don't beg them. We don't ask them. We tell them. They are under our feet. They're low-level spirits. They've been stripped. And they're, they're under the judgment of God. And we don't put up with that. And we'll talk about, can a Christian need deliverance? They most certainly can. But how does that work? If you, if you believe, well, pastor, I, I think that's heretical. Hang with me. We'll get to that in a few weeks, and I'll, I'll make a biblical case for it. Part of it gets into spirit, soul, and body. Part of it gets into uh, legally and, and living in something experientially that's legally ours. And all of those things, the nuances of, of our redemption, we need to understand those things because our ignorance will cost us. And there are a lot of people that are driven to things, and they're, they're consumed and tormented, and they don't need to be because they're not dealing with the demonic entry in their life. And we want to close those things. And we do want to be a people that displace those rogue rulers over our region. But we need to understand how to do that. We need to understand how the spiritual realm works. And we need to understand these are not demons that are in the heavens. There are a couple of passages in the Old Testament that 
refer to them as demons. Uh, and those are poor translations. However, when you get into the New Testament, the, the terminology of demon does uh, kind of expand. And so uh, we are dealing with the demonic realm. When we talk about the kingdom of darkness or the demonic realm, it has to do with those principalities and powers and those low-level, some people call them critters, those demons, those things that we need to, we need to, I, I, sometimes when, when, when we're praying deliverance over someone and someone's uh, going, you know, they're demonized and they're getting delivered, sometimes I'll just bend down there and start to quote scripture in their ear to torment the tormentor on their way out. Hallelujah. We don't need to put up with those things. We need to live righteously, live under the blood, and deal with it. But this is a whole different deal. And this is engaged in a different way. And we, God wants to give his people the victory. So let me close with this. The, the final verse of Psalm chapter 82, what does it say? It says, let me read it to you. Arise, O God, judge the earth. I would propose to you that is an allusion to the resurrection itself. That in the resurrection he stripped them of their power. For you shall inherit all nations. God said, I'm taking them back. Now, here's the deal. You and I are the ones, the agents, through which the judgment comes on our flesh, on the demons, and on the principalities and powers in the nations. You and I are the vehicle of God's power and authority, his judgment on all three entities. But we've got to understand so we can get our minds around it and that we, we, we're not living in ignorance of these things. And then we can lay claim. The great commission, go into all nations. What did Jesus say? All authority has been given unto me. Therefore, go Preach the gospel to all nations. That is a re, what he's doing is he's, he's uh, making good on his declaration to Abraham and he's making good on his declaration in Psalm 82. We now go into all nations. As I've learned this the last number of years, when I go into another country, I'll, I'll go stand on the balcony of my hotel before we're gonna preach somewhere and I don't scream it, you know, I don't, no one else has to, but I just... I just go in there and I just begin to declare, I've arrived as a son of the Most High God and I bear his kingdom and I've come to undo the works of the enemy. I've come in with the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom and I've come in to take this nation back. This brings a whole new dimension when we talk about missions. We've got to deal with those principalities and powers. But it's not through an arrogance where we just start slinging hash and rebuking principalities. We come in under the word of the Lord as sent ones when we are sent. I'm telling you, there's a big, that's why, you know, when, we, when John and Laura came up here today, they feel called to go to Brazil. They have done ministry there before. This is not just a whim. Like, oh, I've heard it's nice this time of year. Let's go to Brazil. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Let's do Brazil. There's, there's a calling to go there. But that's why we also send them. Because we understand that there is, there is something about going into these regions that are still occupied by those rogue entities. And we come in and we begin to preach the gospel. And it undoes the work of the enemy. I would propose to you that the passage that says one day there's the dragon. is Remember in Revelation, it's thrown, he's thrown to the earth. And it says he, he perceives that his time is short and he had great wrath. Remember that? He's thrown to the earth. What is that? He no longer occupies the heavenly realms. There is going to come a time before this thing called human history wraps up where the church, the ascending church, is going to occupy its position in heavenly realms. You are seated in heavenly realms with Christ. It's yours legally, but we need to move into it actually. And it comes through us corporately ascending as the people of God and occupying our place of judicial authority. And as we do, the enemy is displaced. Revival is nothing more and nothing less than the 
the enemy being displaced in those influential positions for a season. And when that happens, there is time for great kingdom advancement. And we've got to fill those spaces before the enemy can come back, look into that house, that large house of a region, find it swept clean but uninhabited, and come back in. And so we're going to look at these themes over the next number of months and uh, we're going we're gonna to work out a theologist. Now, if it, I'm serious. If anything I said to you worries you today about my theology, come and talk to me. Because I want to make sure we're rooting this in the scriptures. This is a thoroughly scriptural theology. But for some of you, it's like, I've never heard anybody get in a pulp and talk like that. Neither have I. So let's, let's talk this through. We're going we're gonna to do a deep dive. We're going to go precept on precept. Build this in the word of God. Because I believe we're entering a time where we're going to need to know more than ever how to exercise the dominion purchased for us at Calvary. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's uh, tell you what. Let's do this. Let, let me close with this. Because i got eight minutes. This is amazing. It, uh, now you're worried. Oh, he's going to go 20. I know him. Your flesh. You, it is. Signs and wonders. The, the, the flesh we need to discipline it. We need to confront it. We need to repent. We need to ask God to help us with these. A lot of times what we struggle with in our flesh is the result of woundedness in our soul. And so in trying to relieve ourselves of emotional pain, we try to get into the saccharine, temporary saccharine sweet experience of sin. And then we pay the price. And if you're a believer and you're doing that, your conscience is killing you. You don't want to do that. But you find yourself sliding into those things. And it may be that you even need a level of deliverance. But we need to deal with those underlying issues so that we're not so susceptible. The emotional woundedness leaves us vulnerable to the enemy. It's like a boxer in a ring. When you, you can have one boxer that's stronger He's, he's, he's more skilled as a boxer, but he may, he, he may be soft. He, he cuts easy. And that will end a guy's career because a, the other boxer, who may not be as skilled and may not be as strong, understands if I can cut him, I will keep hitting that, that cut until they'll call the fight because his cut will open up. Some people are, are better at absorbing cuts than others. And the fact is, the enemy will try to cut you early in life and keep pounding on that wound to cause you to bleed and take you out of the fight. And we want to deal with that. And so if you know that's you, we want to pray for you. I'm going to ask the, the, uh, the prayer team to come forward right now and just come across the front. If you know, man, I, I've, got, I've got some things I need to deal with that, that I, I know it makes me vulnerable. It keeps me on the edge of temptation. Woundedness keeps you on the edge of temptation. It's not an excuse, but I'm telling you, God has compassion and he wants to touch you in that area. And it may be that you have an open door, that you've been involved in some things in the past that has opened the door to the demonic. And God wants to deal with that. And we're gonna get more into this in the days to come. But if you're already aware, man, I've got some, I've got some things that, there's some demonic things, and what we're going to do is just interview them and ask them the, the key questions uh, about the demonic open doors. If you know that you've got something, then we're going to invite you to come forward. You're all looking at me like, wow, is that it? Yes, that's it. If you need prayer this morning, come forward. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.